0: Penguin Random House Audio presents Normal People by Sally Rooney. Read for you by Aoife McMahon. It is one of the secrets in that change of mental poise, which has been fitly named conversion, that to many among us neither heaven nor earth has any revelation till some personality touches theirs with a peculiar influence, subduing them into receptiveness. George Eliot Daniel Deronda January 2011 Marianne answers the door when Connell rings the bell. She's still wearing her school uniform but she's taken off the sweater so it's just the blouse and skirt and she has no shoes on only tights. Oh hey he says come on in. She turns and walks down the hall. He follows her closing the door behind him. Down a few steps in the kitchen, his mother Lorraine is peeling off a pair of rubber gloves. Marianne hops onto the countertop and picks up an open jar of chocolate spread in which she has left a teaspoon. Marianne was telling me you got your mock results today, Lorraine says. We got English back, he says. They come back separately. Do you want to head on? Lorraine folds the rubber gloves up neatly and replaces them below the sink. Then she starts unclipping her hair. To Connell, this seems like something she could accomplish in the car. And I hear you did very well, she says. He was top of the class, says Marianne. Right, Connell says. Marianne did pretty good too. Can we go? Lorraine pauses in the untying of her apron. I didn't realise we were in a rush, she says. He puts his hands in his pockets and suppresses an irritable sigh but suppresses it with an audible intake of breath so that it still sounds like a sigh. I just have to pop up and take a load out of the dryer, says Lorraine, and then we'll be off, okay?" He says nothing, merely hanging his head while Lorraine leaves the room. Do you want some of this? Marianne says. She's holding out the jar of chocolate spread. He presses his hands down slightly further into his pockets, as if trying to store his entire body in his pockets all at once. No thanks, he says. Did you get your French results today? Yesterday. He puts his back against the fridge and watches her lick the spoon. In school, he and Marianne affect not to know each other. People know that Marianne lives in the white mansion with the driveway and the Connell's mother is a cleaner, but no one knows of the special relationship between these facts. I got an A1, he says. What you get in German? An A1, she says. Are you bragging? You're going to get 600, are you? She shrugs. You probably will, she says. Well, you're smarter than me. Don't feel bad. I'm smarter than everyone. Marianne is grinning now. She exercises an open contempt for people in school. She has no friends and spends her lunchtimes alone reading novels. A lot of people really hate her. Her father died when she was 13 and Connell has heard she has a mental illness now or something. It's true, she is the smartest person in school. He dreads being left alone with her like this, but he also finds himself fantasising about the things he could say to impress her. You're not top of the class in English, he points out. She licks her teeth, unconcerned. Maybe you should give me grinds, Connell, she says. He feels his ears get hot. She's probably just being glib and not suggestive, but if she is being suggestive, it's only to degrade him by association, since she is considered an object of disgust. She wears ugly, thick-soled flat shoes and doesn't put makeup on her face. People have said she doesn't shave her legs or anything. Connell once heard that she spilled chocolate ice cream on herself in the school lunchroom and then went into the girls' bathrooms and took off her blouse to wash it in the sink. That's a popular story about her. Everyone has heard it. If she wanted, she could make a big show of saying hello to Connell in school. See you this afternoon, she could say in front of everyone. Undoubtedly, it would put him in an awkward position, which is the kind of thing she usually seems to enjoy. But she has never done it. What were you talking to Miss Neary about today? says Marianne. Oh, nothing. I dunno. Exams. Marianne twists the spoon around inside the jar. Does she fancy you or something? Marianne says. Connell watches her moving the spoon. His ears still feel very hot. Why'd you say that? he says. God, you're not having an affair with her, are you? Obviously not. Do you think it's funny to joke about that? Sorry, says Marianne. She has a focused expression, like she's looking through his eyes into the back of his head. You're right, it's not funny, she says. I'm sorry. He nods, looks around the room for a bit, digs the toe of his shoe into a groove between the tiles. Sometimes I feel like she does act kind of weird around me. He says, but I wouldn't say that to people or anything. Even in class I think she's very flirtatious towards you. Do you really think that? Marianne nods. He rubs at his neck. Miss Neary teaches economics. His supposed feelings for her are widely discussed in school. Some people are even saying that he tried to add her on Facebook, which he didn't and would never do. Actually, he doesn't do or say anything to her. He just sits there quietly while she does and says things to him. She keeps him back after class sometimes to talk about his life direction and once she actually touched the knot of his school tie. He can't tell people about the way she acts because they'll think he's trying to brag about it. In class, he feels too embarrassed and annoyed to concentrate on the lesson. He just sits there staring at the textbook until the bar graphs start to blur. People are always going on to me that I fancy or whatever, he says, but I actually don't at all. I mean, you don't think I'm playing into it when she acts like that, do you? Not that I've seen. He wipes his palms down on his school shirt unthinkingly. Everyone is so convinced of his attraction to Miss Neary that sometimes he starts to doubt his own instincts about it. What if, at some level above or below his own perception, he does actually desire her? He doesn't even really know what desire is supposed to feel like. Any time he has had sex in real life he has found it so stressful as to be largely unpleasant leading him to suspect that there's something wrong with him that he's unable to be intimate with women that he's somehow developmentally impaired. He lies there afterwards and thinks I hated that so much that I feel sick. Is that just the way he is? Is the nausea he feels when Miss Neary leans over his desk actually his way of experiencing a sexual thrill? How would he know? I could go to Mr. Lyons for you if you want, says Marianne. I won't say you told me anything. I'll just say I noticed it myself. Jesus, no, definitely not. Don't say anything about it to anyone, okay?" "Okay, all right. He looks at her to confirm she's being serious and then nods. It's not your fault she acts like that with you, says Marianne. You're not doing anything wrong. Quietly, he says... Why does everyone else think I fancy her then? Maybe because you blush a lot when she talks to you. But you know, you blush at everything. You just have that complexion. He gives a short, unhappy laugh. Thanks, he says. Well, you do. Yeah, I'm aware. You're blushing now, actually, says Marianne. He closes his eyes, pushes his tongue against the roof of his mouth. He can hear Marianne laughing. Why do you have to be so harsh on people? he says. I'm not being harsh. I don't care if you're blushing. I won't tell anyone. Just because you won't tell people doesn't mean you can say whatever you want. Okay, she says. Sorry. He turns and looks out the window at the garden. Really, the garden is more like grounds. It includes a tennis court and a large stone statue in the shape of a woman. He looks out at the grounds and moves his face close to the cool breath of the glass. When people tell that story about Marianne washing her blouse in the sink, they act like it's just funny. But Connell thinks the real purpose of the story is something else. Marianne has never been with anyone in school. No one has ever seen her undressed. No one even knows if she likes boys or girls. She won't tell anyone. People resent that about her. And Connell thinks that's why they tell the story. As a way of gawking at something they're not allowed to see. I don't want to get into a fight with you she says. We're not fighting. I know you probably hate me, but you're the only person who actually talks to me. I never said I hated you, he says. That gets her attention, and she looks up. Confused, he continues looking away from her, but in the corner of his eye, he still sees her watching. When he talks to Marianne, he has a sense of total privacy between them. He could tell her anything about himself, even weird things and she would never repeat them. He knows that. Being alone with her is like opening a door away from normal life and then closing it behind him. He's not frightened of her. Actually, she's a pretty relaxed person. But he fears being around her because of the confusing way he finds himself behaving, the things he says that he would never ordinarily say. A few weeks ago, when he was waiting for Lorraine in the hall, Marianne came downstairs in a bathrobe. It was just a plain white bathrobe tied in the normal way. Her hair was wet and her skin had that glistening look like she had just been applying face cream. When she saw Conal, she hesitated on the stairs and said, I didn't know you were here. Sorry. Maybe she seemed flustered, but not really badly or anything. Then she went back up to her room. After she left, he stood there in the hall waiting. He knew she was probably getting dressed in her room and whatever clothes she was wearing when she came back down would be the clothes she had chosen to put on after she saw him in the hall. Anyway, Lorraine was ready to go before Marianne reappeared, so he never did get to see what clothes she had put on. It wasn't like he deeply cared to know. He certainly didn't tell anyone in school about it, that he had seen her in a bathrobe, or that she looked flustered. It wasn't anyone's business to know. "'Well, I like you,' Marianne says. For a few seconds he says nothing, and the intensity of the privacy between them is very severe, pressing in on him with an almost physical pressure on his face and body. Then Lorraine comes back into the kitchen, tying her scarf around her neck. She does a little knock on the door, even though it's already open. Good to go? she says. Yeah, says Connell. Thanks for everything, Lorraine, says Marianne. See you next week. Connell is already heading out the kitchen door when his mother says, you can say goodbye, can't you? He turns to look over his shoulder but finds he cannot actually look Marianne in the eye so he addresses himself to the floor instead. Right, bye, he says. He doesn't wait to hear her reply. In the car, his mother puts on her seatbelt and shakes her head. You could be a bit nicer to her, she says. She doesn't exactly have an easy time of it in school. He puts the keys in the ignition, glances in the rear view. I'm nice to her, he says. She's actually a very sensitive person, says Lorraine. Can we talk about something else? Lorraine makes a face. He stares out the windshield and pretends not to see. Three weeks later. February, 2011. She sits at her dressing table looking at her face in the mirror. Her face lacks definition around the cheeks and jaw. It's a face like a piece of technology, and her two eyes are cursors blinking. Or it's reminiscent of the moon reflected in something wobbly and oblique. It expresses everything all at once, which is the same as expressing nothing. To wear a make for this occasion would be, she concludes, embarrassing. Without breaking eye contact with herself, she dips her finger in an open pot of clear lip balm and applies it. Downstairs, when she takes her coat off the hook, her brother Alan comes out from the living room. Where are you going? he says. Out? Where's out? She puts her arms through the sleeves of her coat and adjusts the collar. She's beginning to feel nervous now and hopes her silence is communicating insolence rather than uncertainty. Just out for a walk? she says. Alan moves to stand in front of the door. Well, I know you're not going out to meet friends, he says, because you don't have any friends, do you? No, I don't. She smiles now, a placid smile, hoping that this gesture of submission will placate him and he'll move away from the door. Instead, he says, What are you doing that for? What? she says. This weird smile you're doing. He mimics her face, contorted into an ugly grin teeth bared. Though he's grinning, the force and extremity of this impersonation make him look angry. Are you happy that you don't have friends? He says. No. Still smiling, she takes two small steps backwards and then turns and walks towards the kitchen where there's a patio door onto the garden. Alan walks after her. He grabs her by the upper arm and tugs her back from the door. She feels her jaw tighten. His fingers compress her arm through her jacket. "'If you go crying to ma'am about this,' says Alan. "'No,' says Marianne. "'No, I'm just going out for a walk now. "'Thank you.' He releases her and she slips out through the patio door, closing it behind her. Outside the air feels very cold and her teeth start to chatter. She walks around the side of the house, down the driveway and out into the street.' Her arm is throbbing where he grabbed it. She takes her phone from a pocket and composes a text, repeatedly hitting the wrong key, deleting and retyping. Finally, she sends it. On my way. Before she puts the phone back, she receives a reply. Cool. See you soon. At the end of last term, the school soccer team reached the final of some competition and everyone in the year had to take the last three classes off and go and watch them. Marianne had never seen them play before. She had no interest in sport and suffered anxiety related to physical education. In the bus on the way to the match, she just listened to her headphones. No one spoke to her. Out the window, black cattle, green meadows, white houses with brown roof tiles. The football team were all together at the top of the bus, drinking water and slapping each other on the shoulders to raise morale. Marianne had the sense that her real life was happening somewhere very far away, happening without her, and she didn't know if she would ever find out where it was and become a part of it. She had that feeling in school often, but it wasn't accompanied by any specific images of what the real life might look or feel like. All she knew was that when it started, she wouldn't need to imagine it any more. It stayed dry for the match. They had been brought there for the purpose of standing at the sidelines and cheering, Marianne was near the goalposts, with Karen and some of the other girls. Everyone other than Marianne seemed to know the school chants off by heart, somehow, with lyrics she had never heard before. By half-time it was still nil all, and Miss Keeney handed around boxes of juice and energy bars. For the second half, the ends changed around, and the school forwards were playing near where Marianne was standing. Connell Waldron was the centre-forward. She could see him standing there in his football kit, the shiny white shorts, the school jersey with number nine on the back. He had very good posture, more so than any of the other players. His figure was like a long, elegant line drawn with a brush. When the ball moved towards their end of the pitch, he tended to run around and maybe throw one of his hands in the air, and then he went back to standing still. It was pleasurable to watch him, and she didn't think he knew or cared where she was standing. After school some day, she could tell him she had been watching him and he'd laugh at her and call her weird. At seventy minutes, Aidan Kennedy brought the ball up the left side of the pitch and crossed it over to Connell, who took a shot from the corner of the penalty area over the heads of the defenders, and it spun into the back of the net. Everyone screamed, even Marianne, and Karen threw her arm around Marianne's waist and squeezed it. They were cheering together. They had seen something magical – which dissolved the ordinary social relations between them. Miss Keeney was whistling and stamping her feet. On the pitch, Connell and Aidan embraced like reunited brothers. Connell was so beautiful. It occurred to Marianne how much she wanted to see him having sex with someone. It didn't have to be her. It could be anybody. It would be beautiful just to watch him. She knew these were the kind of thoughts that made her different from other people in school, and weirder. Marianne's classmates all seem to like school so much and find it normal. To dress in the same uniform every day, to comply at all times with arbitrary rules, to be scrutinised and monitored for misbehaviour. This is normal to them. They have no sense of the school as an oppressive environment. Marianne had a row with the history teacher, Mr Kerrigan, last year because he caught her looking out a window during class and no one in the class took her side. It seemed so obviously insane to her that she should have to dress up in a costume every morning and be herded around a huge building all day and that she wasn't even allowed to move her eyes where she wanted. Even her eye movements fell under the jurisdiction of school rules. You're not learning if you're staring out of the window daydreaming, Mr. Kerrigan said. Marianne, who had lost her temper by then, snapped back. Don't delude yourself. I have nothing to learn from you. Connell said recently that he remembered that incident and that at the time he'd felt she was being harsh on Mr. Kerrigan, who was actually one of the more reasonable teachers. "'But I see what you're saying,' Connell added. "'About feeling a bit imprisoned in the school. I do see that. He should have let you look out the window. I would agree there. You weren't doing any harm.' After their conversation in the kitchen, when she told him she liked him, Connell started coming over to her house more often. He would arrive early to pick his mother up from work, and hang around in the living room not saying much, or stand by the fireplace with his hands in his pockets. Marianne never asked why he came over. They talked a little bit, or she talked and he nodded. He told her she should try reading the Communist Manifesto. He thought she would like it, and he offered to write down the title for her so she wouldn't forget. I know what the Communist Manifesto is called, she said. He shrugged okay. After a moment he added, smiling, You're trying to act superior, but, like, you haven't even read it. She had to laugh then, and he laughed because she did. They couldn't look at each other when they were laughing. They had to look into the corners of the room, or at their feet. Connell seemed to understand how she felt about school. He said he liked hearing her opinions. You hear enough of them in class, she said. Matter-of-factly, he replied, You act different in class. You're not really like that. He seemed to think Marianne had access to a range of different identities between which she slipped effortlessly. This surprised her because she usually felt confined inside one single personality which was always the same regardless of what she did or said. She had tried to be different in the past as a kind of experiment but it had never worked. If she was different with Connell the difference was not happening inside herself in her personhood but in between them in the dynamic Sometimes she made him laugh, but other days he was taciturn, inscrutable, and after he left she would feel high, nervous, at once energetic and terribly drained. He followed her into the study last week while she was looking for a copy of The Fire Next Time to lend him. He stood there inspecting the bookshelves with his top shirt button undone and school tie loosened. She found the book and handed it to him and he sat down on the window seat looking at the back cover. She sat beside him and asked if his friends Eric and Rob knew that he read so much outside school. They wouldn't be interested in that stuff, he said. You mean they're not interested in the world around them? Connell made the face he always made when she criticised his friends, an inexpressive frown. Not in the same way, he said. They have their own interests. I don't think they'd be reading books about racism and all that. ''Right. They're too busy bragging about who they're having sex with,'' she said. He paused for a second, like his ears had pricked up at this remark. But he didn't know exactly how to respond. ''Yeah, they do a bit of that,'' he said. ''I'm not defending it. I know they can be annoying.'' ''Doesn't it bother you?'' He paused again. ''Most of it wouldn't,'' he said. ''They do some stuff that goes a bit over the line and that would annoy me, obviously.'' but at the end of the day they're my friends, you know. It's different for you. She looked at him, but he was examining the spine of the book. Why is it different? She said. He shrugged, bending the book cover back and forth. She felt frustrated. Her face and hands were hot. He kept on looking at the book, although he'd certainly read all the text on the back by then. She was attuned to the presence of his body in a microscopic way as if the ordinary motion of his breathing was powerful enough to make her ill. You know you were saying the other day that you like me, he said. In the kitchen you said it when we were talking about school. Yeah. Did you mean like as a friend or what? She stared down into her lap. She was wearing a corduroy skirt and in the light from the window she could see it was flecked with pieces of lint. No, not just as a friend, she said. Oh, okay. I was wondering. He sat there, nodding to himself. I'm kind of confused about what I feel, he added. I think it would be awkward in school if anything happened with us. No one would have to know. He looked up at her, directly, with total attention. She knew he was going to kiss her, and he did. His lips were soft, his tongue moved into her mouth slightly. Then it was over and he was drawing away. He seemed to remember he was holding the book and began to look at it again. That was nice, she said. He nodded, swallowed, glanced down at the book once more. His attitude was so sheepish, as if it had been rude of her even to make reference to the kiss, that Marianne started to laugh. He looked flustered then. All right, he said. What are you laughing for? Nothing. You're acting like you've never kissed anyone before. Well, I haven't, she said. He put his hand over his face. She laughed again. She couldn't stop herself. And then he was laughing too. His ears were very red and he was shaking his head. After a few seconds, he stood up, holding the book in his hand. Don't go telling people in school about this, okay? He said. Like I would talk to anyone in school he left the room. Weakly, she crumpled off the seat down onto the floor with her legs stretched out in front of her like a rag doll. While she sat there, she felt as if Connell had been visiting her house only to test her and she had passed the test and the kiss was a communication that said you passed. She thought of the way he'd laughed when she said she'd never kissed anyone before. For another person to laugh that way might have been cruel but it wasn't like that with him. They'd been laughing together at a shared situation they'd found themselves in, though how to describe the situation or what was funny about it, Marianne didn't know exactly. The next morning before German class, she sat watching her classmates shove each other off the storage heaters, shrieking and giggling. When the lesson began, they listened quietly to an audio tape of a German woman speaking about a party she had missed. Es tut mir sehr leid. In the afternoon, It started snowing, thick grey flakes that fluttered past the windows and melted on the gravel. Everything looked and felt sensuous. The stale smell of classrooms, the tinny intercom bell that sounded between lessons, the dark austere trees that stood like apparitions around the basketball court, the slow routine work of copying out notes in different coloured pens on fresh blue and white lined paper. Connell, as usual, did not speak to Marianne in school or even look at her. She watched him across classrooms as he conjugated verbs, chewing on the end of his pen. On the other side of the cafeteria at lunchtime, smiling about something with his friends. Their secret weighed inside her body pleasurably, pressing down on her pelvic bone when she moved. She didn't see him after school that day or the next. On Thursday afternoon his mother was working again and he arrived early to pick her up. Marianne had to answer the door because no one else was home. He had changed out of his school uniform. He was wearing black jeans and a sweatshirt. When she saw him, she had an instinct to run away and hide her face. Lorraine's in the kitchen, she said. Then she turned and went upstairs to her room and closed the door. She lay face down on the bed, breathing into the pillow. Who was this person, Connell, anyway? She felt she knew him very intimately, but what reason did she have to feel that? Just because he had kissed her once with no explanation and then warned her not to tell anyone? After a minute or two, she heard a knock on her bedroom door and she sat up. Come in, she said. He opened the door and, giving her an inquiring look as if to see whether he was welcome, entered the room and closed the door behind him. Are you pissed off at me? He said. No. Why would I be? He shrugged. Idly, he wandered over to the bed and sat down. She was sitting cross-legged, holding her ankles. They sat there in silence for a few moments. Then he got onto the bed with her. He touched her leg and she lay back against the pillow. Boldly, she asked if he was going to kiss her again. He said, What do you think? This struck her as a highly cryptic and sophisticated thing to say. Anyway, he did start to kiss her. She told him that it was nice and he just said nothing. She felt she would do anything to make him like her, to make him say out loud that he liked her. He put his hand under her school blouse. In his ear she said, Can we take our clothes off? He had his hand inside her bra. Definitely not, he said. This is stupid anyway. Lorraine is right downstairs. He called his mother by her first name like that. Marianne said, She never comes up here. He shook his head and said, No, we should stop. He sat up and looked down at her. You were tempted for a second there, she said. Not really. I tempted you. He was shaking his head, smiling. You're such a strange person, he said. Now she's standing in his driveway, where his car is parked. He texted her the address. It's number 33. A terraced house with pebble-dash walls, net curtains, a tiny concrete yard. She can see a light switched on in the upstairs window. It's hard to believe he really lives in there, a house she has never been inside or even seen before. She's wearing a black sweater, grey skirt, cheap black underwear. Her legs are shaved meticulously, her underarms are smooth and chalky with deodorant and her nose is running a little. She rings the doorbell and hears his footsteps coming down the stairs. He opens the door. Before he lets her in, he looks over her shoulder to make sure that no one has seen her arrive. One Month Later March 2011 They're talking about their college applications. Marianne is lying with the bedsheet pulled carelessly over her body and Connell's sitting up with her MacBook in his lap. She's already applied for history and politics in Trinity. He's put down law in Galway, but now he thinks that he might change it because, as Marianne has pointed out, he has no interest in law. He can't even visually imagine himself as a lawyer, wearing a tie and so on, possibly helping to convict people of crimes.' He just put it down because he couldn't think of anything else. You should study English, says Marianne. Do you think I should or are you joking? I think you should. It's the only subject you really enjoy in school and you spend all your free time reading. He looks at the laptop blankly and then at the thin yellow bedsheet draped over her body which casts a lilac triangle of shadow on her breast. Not all my free time, he says. She smiles. Plus the class will be full of girls, she says, so you'll be a total stud. Yeah, I'm not sure about the job prospects though. Ah, who cares? The economy's fucked anyway. The laptop screen has gone black now and he taps the trackpad to light it up again. The college application's webpage stares back at him. After the first time they had sex, Marianne stayed the night in his house. He had never been with a girl who was a virgin before. In total, he had only had sex a small number of times and always with girls who went on to tell the whole school about it afterwards. He'd had to hear his actions repeated back to him later in the locker room, his errors and, so much worse, his excruciating attempts at tenderness performed in gigantic pantomime. With Marianne it was different because everything was between them only, even awkward or difficult things. He could do or say anything he wanted with her and no one would ever find out. It gave him a vertiginous, light-headed feeling to think about it. When he touched her that night she was so wet and she rolled her eyes back into her head and said, God, yes. And she was allowed to say it, no one would know. He was afraid he would come then, just from touching her like that. In the hallway the next morning he kissed her goodbye and her mouth tasted alkaline, like toothpaste. "'Thanks,' she said. Then she left, before he understood what he was being thanked for. He put the bedsheets in the washing machine and took fresh linen from the hot press. He was thinking about what a secretive, independent-minded person Marianne was, that she could come over to his house and let him have sex with her, and she felt no need to tell anyone about it. She just let things happen, like nothing meant anything to her. Lorraine got home that afternoon— Before she'd even put her keys on the table, she said, "'Is that the washing machine?' Connell nodded. She crouched down and looked through the round glass window into the drum, where his sheets were tossing around in the froth. "'I'm not going to ask,' she said. "'What?' She started to fill the kettle while he leaned against the countertop. "'Why, your bedclothes are in the wash,' she said. "'I'm not asking.' He rolled his eyes just for something to do with his face. You think the worst of everything, he said. She laughed, fixing the kettle into its cradle and hitting the switch. Excuse me, she said. I must be the most permissive mother of anyone in your school. As long as you're using protection, you can do what you want. He said nothing. The kettle started to warm up and she took a clean mug down from the press. Well, she said. Is that a yes? Yes what? Obviously I didn't have unprotected sex with anyone while you were gone. Jesus. So go on. What's her name? He left the room then, but he could hear his mother laughing as he went up the stairs. His life is always giving her amusement. In school on Monday, he had to avoid looking at Marianne or interacting with her in any way. He carried the secret around like something large and hot, like an overfull tray of hot drinks that he had to carry everywhere and never spill. She just acted the same as always, like it never happened, reading her book at the lockers as usual, getting into pointless arguments. At lunchtime on Tuesday, Rob started asking questions about Connell's mother working in Marianne's house, and Conal just ate his lunch and tried not to make any facial expressions. Would you ever go in there yourself? Rob said. Into the mansion? Connell jogged his bag of chips in his hand and then peered into it. I've been in there a few times, yeah, he said. What's it like inside? He shrugged. Dunno, he said. Big, obviously. What's she like in her natural habitat? Rob said. I don't know. I'd say she thinks of you as her butler, does she? Connell wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. It felt greasy. His chips were too salty and he had a headache. I doubt it, Connell said. But your ma'am is her housemaid, isn't she? Well, she's just a cleaner. She's only there, like, twice a week. I don't think they interact much. Does Marianne not have a little bell she would ring to get her attention, no? Rob said. Connell said nothing. He didn't understand the situation with Marianne at that point. After he talked to Rob, he told himself it was over. He'd just had sex with her once to see what it was like and he wouldn't see her again. Even as he was saying all this to himself, however, he could hear another part of his brain in a different voice saying, Yes, you will. It was a part of his consciousness he had never really known before, this inexplicable drive to act on perverse and secret desires. He found himself fantasising about her in class that afternoon at the back of maths or when they were supposed to be playing rounders. He would think of her small, wet mouth and suddenly run out of breath and have to struggle to fill his lungs. That afternoon he went to her house after school. All the way over in the car he kept the radio on very loud so he didn't have to think about what he was doing. When they went upstairs he didn't say anything, he let her talk. "'That's so good,' she kept saying. "'That feels so good!' Her body was all soft and white, like flour dough. He seemed to fit perfectly inside her. Physically, it just felt right. And he understood why people did insane things for sexual reasons then. In fact, he understood a lot of things about the adult world that had previously seemed mysterious. But why Marianne? It wasn't like she was so attractive. Some people thought she was the ugliest girl in school. What kind of person would want to do this with her? And yet he was there, whatever kind of person he was, doing it. She asked him if it felt good and he pretended he didn't hear her. She was on her hands and knees so he couldn't see her facial expression or read into it what she was thinking. After a few seconds she said in a much smaller voice, Am I doing something wrong? He closed his eyes. No, he said. I like it. Her breath sounded ragged then. He pulled her hips back against his body and then released her slightly. She made a noise like she was choking. He did it again and she told him she was going to come. That's good, he said. He said this like nothing could be more ordinary to him. His decision to drive to Marianne's house that afternoon suddenly seemed very correct and intelligent, maybe the only intelligent thing he had ever done in his life. After they were finished, he asked her what he should do with the condom. Without lifting her face off the pillow, she said, You can just leave it on the floor. Her face was pink and damp. He did what she said and then lay on his back looking up at the light fixtures. I like you so much, Marianne said. Connell felt a pleasurable sorrow come over him which brought him close to tears. Moments of emotional pain arrived like this, meaningless or at least indecipherable. Marianne lived a drastically free life, he could see that. He was trapped by various considerations. He cared what people thought of him. He even cared what Marianne thought. That was obvious now. Multiple times he has tried writing his thoughts about Marianne down on paper in an effort to make sense of them. He's moved by a desire to describe in words exactly how she looks and speaks. Her hair and clothing. The copy of Swan's Way she reads at lunchtime in the school cafeteria with a dark French painting on the cover and a mint-coloured spine. Her long fingers turning the pages. She's not leading the same kind of life as other people. She acts so worldly at times making him feel ignorant but then she can be so naive. He wants to understand how her mind works. If he silently decides not to say something when they're talking, Marianne will ask, What? within one or two seconds. This what question seems to him to contain so much. Not just the forensic attentiveness to his silences that allows her to ask in the first place, but a desire for total communication. A sense that anything unsaid is an unwelcome interruption between them. He writes these things down, Long, run-on sentences with too many dependent clauses, sometimes connected with breathless semicolons, as if he wants to recreate a precise copy of Marianne in print, as if he can preserve her completely for future review. Then he turns a new page in the notebook so he doesn't have to look at what he's done. What are you thinking about? Marianne says now. She's tucking her hair behind her ear. College, he says. You should apply for English in Trinity. He stares at the webpage again. Lately, he's consumed by a sense that he is in fact two separate people and soon he will have to choose which person to be on a full-time basis and leave the other person behind. He has a life in Carrick Lee. He has friends. If he went to college in Galway, he could stay with the same social group, really, and live the life he has always planned on, getting a good degree, having a nice girlfriend. People would say he had done well for himself. On the other hand, he could go to Trinity like Marianne. Life would be different then. He would start going to dinner parties and having conversations about the Greek bailout. He could fuck some weird-looking girls who turn out to be bisexual. I've read The Golden Notebook, he could tell them. It's true, he has read it. After that, he would never come back to Carrick Lee. He would go somewhere else, London or Barcelona. People would not necessarily think he had done well. Some people might think he had gone very bad, while others would forget about him entirely. What would Lorraine think? She would want him to be happy and not care what others said. But the old Connell, the one all his friends know, that person would be dead in a way, or worse, buried alive and screaming under the earth. Then we'd both be in Dublin, he says, I bet you'd pretend you didn't know me if we bumped into each other. Marianne says nothing at first. The longer she stays silent, the more nervous he feels. Like maybe she really would pretend not to know him. And the idea of being beneath her notice gives him a panicked feeling. Not only about Marianne personally, but about his future. About what's possible for him. Then she says, I would never pretend not to know you, Connell. The silence becomes very intense after that. For a few seconds he lies still. Of course, he pretends not to know Marianne in school, but he didn't mean to bring that up. That's just the way it has to be. If people found out what he has been doing with Marianne in secret while ignoring her every day in school, his life would be over. He would walk down the hallway and people's eyes would follow him like he was a serial killer or worse. His friends don't think of him as a deviant person, a person who could say to Marianne Sheridan in broad daylight, completely sober, Is it okay if I come in your mouth? With his friends he acts normal. He and Marianne have their own private life in his room where no one can bother them, so there's no reason to mix up the separate worlds. Still, he can tell he has lost his footing in their discussion and left an opening for this subject to arise, though he didn't want it to. And now he has to say something. Would you not? He says. No. All right. I'll put down English in Trinity then. Really? She says. Yeah. I don't care that much about getting a job anyway. She gives him a little smile, like she feels she has won the argument. He likes to give her that feeling. For a moment it seems possible to keep both worlds, both versions of his life, and to move in between them just like moving through a door. He can have the respect of someone like Marianne and also be well-liked in school. He can form secret opinions and preferences. No conflict has to arise. He never has to choose one thing over another. With only a little subterfuge, he can live two entirely separate existences— never confronting the ultimate question of what to do with himself or what kind of person he is. This thought is so consoling that for a few seconds he avoids meeting Marianne's eye, wanting to sustain the belief for just a little longer. He knows that when he looks at her, he won't be able to believe it any more. Six weeks later April, 2011 They have her name on a list. She shows the bouncer her ID. When she gets inside, the interior is low-lit, cavernous, vaguely purple, with long bars on either side and steps down to a dance floor. It smells of stale alcohol and the flat, tinny ringing of dry ice. Some of the other girls from the fundraising committee are sitting around a table already, looking at lists. Hi, Marianne says. They turn around and look at her. Hello? says Lisa. Don't you scrub up well? You look gorgeous, says Karen. Rachel Morin says nothing. Everyone knows that Rachel is the most popular girl in the school, but no one is allowed to say this. Instead, everyone has to pretend not to notice that their social lives are arranged hierarchically with certain people at the top, some jostling at mid-level and others lower down. Marianne sometimes sees herself at the very bottom of the ladder, But at other times, she pictures herself off the ladder completely, not affected by its mechanics, since she does not actually desire popularity or do anything to make it belong to her. From her vantage point, it is not obvious what rewards the ladder provides, even to those who are really at the top. She rubs her upper arm and says, ''Thanks. Would anyone like a drink? I'm going to the bar anyway.'' ''I thought you didn't drink alcohol,'' says Rachel. I'll have a bottle of West Coast Cooler, Karen says, if you're sure. Wine is the only alcoholic beverage Marianne has ever tried. But when she goes to the bar, she decides to order a gin and tonic. The barman looks frankly at her breasts while she's talking. Marianne had no idea men really did such things outside of films and TV, and the experience gives her a little thrill of femininity. She's wearing a filmy black dress that clings to her body. The place is still almost empty now, though the event has technically started. Back at the table, Karen thanks her extravagantly for the drink. I'll get you back, she says. Don't worry about it, says Marianne, waving her hand. Eventually, people start arriving. The music comes on, a pounding Destiny's Child remix, and Rachel gives Marianne the book of raffle tickets and explains the pricing system. Marianne was voted onto the Debs Fundraising Committee, presumably as some kind of joke, but she has to help organise the events anyway. Ticket book in hand, she continues to hover beside the other girls. She's used to observing these people from a distance, almost scientifically, but tonight, having to make conversation and smile politely, she's no longer an observer but an intruder, and an awkward one. She sells some tickets, dispensing change from the pouch in her purse. She buys more drinks. She glances at the door and looks away in disappointment. The lads are fairly late, says Lisa. Of all the possible lads, Marianne knows who is specified. Rob, with whom Lisa has an on-again, off-again relationship, and his friends Eric, Jack Hines and Connell Waldron. Their lateness has not escaped Marianne's notice. If they don't show up, I will actually murder Connell, says Rachel. He told me yesterday they were definitely coming. Marianne says nothing. Rachel often talks about Connell this way, alluding to private conversations that have happened between them, as if they are special confidants. Connell ignores this behaviour, but he also ignores the hints Marianne drops about it when they're alone together. They're probably still pre-drinking in Rob's, says Lisa. They'll be absolutely binned by the time they get here, says Karen. Marianne takes her phone from her bag and writes Connell a text message. Lively discussion here on the subject of your absence. Are you planning to come at all? Within 30 seconds he replies, Yeah, Jack just got sick everywhere so we had to put him in a taxi, etc. On our way soon though. How are you getting on socialising with people? Marianne writes back, I'm the new popular girl in school now. Everyone's carrying me around the dance floor chanting my name. She puts her phone back in her bag. Nothing would feel more exhilarating to her at this moment than to say, they'll be on their way shortly. How much terrifying and bewildering status would accrue to her in this one moment? How destabilising it would be. How destructive. Although Carrickley is the only place Marianne has ever lived, it's not a town she knows particularly well. She doesn't go drinking in the pubs on Main Street and before tonight she had never been to the town's only nightclub. She has never visited the Knocklin housing estate. She doesn't know the name of the river that runs brown and bedraggled past the centra and behind the church car park, snagging thin plastic bags in its current or where the river goes next. Who would tell her? The only time she leaves the house is to go to school and the enforced mass trip on Sundays and to Connell's house when no one is home. She knows how long it takes to get to Sligo Town, twenty minutes, but the locations of other nearby towns and their sizes in relation to Carrick Lee are a mystery to her. Kulene, Screen, Ballisadair, she's pretty sure these are all in the vicinity of Carrick Lee, and the names ring bells for her in a vague way, but she doesn't know where they are. She's never been inside the sports centre, She's never gone drinking in the abandoned hat factory, though she has been driven past it in the car. Likewise, it's impossible for her to know which families in town are considered good families and which aren't. It's the kind of thing she would like to know, just to be able to reject it the more completely. She's from a good family and Connell is from a bad one. That much she does know. The Waldrons are notorious in Carrick One of Lorraine's brothers was in prison once. Marianne doesn't know for what. And another one got into a motorcycle crash off the roundabout a few years ago and almost died. And, of course, Lorraine got pregnant at seventeen and left school to have the baby. Nonetheless, Connell is considered quite a catch these days. He's studious, he plays centre forward in football, he's good looking, he doesn't get into fights. Everybody likes him. He's quiet. Even Marianne's mother will say approvingly, That boy is nothing like a Waldron. Marianne's mother is a solicitor. Her father was a solicitor too. Last week, Connell mentioned something called the ghost. Marianne had never heard of it before. She had to ask him what it was. His eyebrows shot up. The ghost, he said. The ghost estate, Mountain View. It's like right behind the school. Marianne had been vaguely aware of some construction on the land behind the school, but she didn't know there was a housing estate there now "'or that no one lived in it.' "'People go drinking there,' Connell added. "'Oh,' said Marianne. "'She asked what it was like. "'He said he wished he could show her, "'but there were always people around. "'He often makes blithe remarks about things he wishes. "'I wish you didn't have to go,' he says when she's leaving, "'or I wish you could stay the night. "'If he really wished for any of those things, Marianne knows, "'then they would happen.' Connell always gets what he wants "'and then feels sorry for himself "'when what he wants doesn't make him happy. "'Anyway, he did end up taking her to see the ghost estate. "'They drove there in his car one afternoon "'and he went out first to make sure no one was around "'before she followed him. "'The houses were huge, "'with bare concrete facades and overgrown front lawns. "'Some of the empty window holes "'were covered over in plastic sheeting "'which whipped around loudly in the wind.' It was raining and she had left her jacket in the car. She crossed her arms, squinting up at the wet slate roofs. Do you want to look inside? Connell said. The front door of number 23 was unlocked. It was quieter in the house and darker. The place was filthy. With the toe of her shoe, Marianne prodded at an empty cider bottle. There were cigarette butts all over the floor and someone had dragged a mattress into the otherwise bare living room. The mattress was stained badly with damp and what looked like blood. Pretty sordid, Marianne said aloud. Connell was quiet, just looking around. Do you hang out here much? She said. He gave a kind of shrug. Not much, he said. Used to a bit. Not much anymore. Please tell me you've never had sex on that mattress. He smiled absently. No, he said. Is that what you think I get up to at the weekend, is it? Kind of. He didn't say anything then, which made her feel even worse. He kicked a crushed can of Dutch gold aimlessly and sent it skidding towards the French doors. This is probably three times the size of my house, he said. Would you say? She felt foolish for not realising what he had been thinking about. Probably, she said. I haven't seen upstairs, obviously. Four bedrooms. Jesus. Just lying empty. No one living in it, he said. Why don't they give them away if they can't sell them? I'm not being thick with you. I'm genuinely asking. She shrugged. She didn't actually understand why. It's something to do with capitalism, she said. Yeah, everything is. That's the problem, isn't it? She nodded. He looked over at her as if coming out of a dream. Are you cold? He said. You look like you're freezing. She smiled, rubbed at her nose. He unzipped his black puffer jacket and put it over her shoulders. They were standing very close. She would have lain on the ground and let him walk over her body if he wanted. He knew that. When I go out at the weekend or whatever, he said, I don't go after other girls or anything. Marianne smiled and said, No, I guess they come after you. He grinned. He looked down at his shoes. You have a very funny idea of me, he said. She closed her fingers around his school tie. It was the first time in her life she could say shocking things and use bad language, so she did it a lot. If I wanted you to fuck me here, she said, would you do it? His expression didn't change, but his hands moved around under her jumper to show he was listening. After a few seconds he said, Yeah, if you wanted to, yeah. You're always making me do such weird things. What does that mean? she said. I can't make you do anything. Yeah, you can. Do you think there's any other person I would do this type of thing with? Seriously, do you think anyone else could make me sneak around after school and all this? What do you want me to do? Leave you alone? He looked at her, seemingly taken aback by this turn in the discussion. Shaking his head, he said, If you did that... She looked at him, but he didn't say anything else. If I did that, what? She said. I don't know. You mean if you just didn't want to see each other anymore? I would feel surprised, honestly, because you seem like you enjoy it. And what if I met someone else who liked me more? He laughed. She turned away crossly, pulling out of his grasp, wrapping her arms around her chest. He said hey, but she didn't turn around. She was facing the disgusting mattress with the rust-coloured stains all over it. Gently he came up behind her and lifted her hair to kiss the back of her neck. Sorry for laughing, he said. You're making me insecure talking about not wanting to hang out with me anymore. I thought you liked me.' She shot her eyes. "'I do like you,' she said. "'Well, if you met someone else you liked more, I'd be pissed off, OK? Since you ask about it. I wouldn't be happy, all right?' "'Your friend Eric called me flat-chested today in front of everyone.' Connell paused. She felt his breathing. "'I didn't hear that,' he said. "'You were in the bathroom or somewhere?' He said I look like an ironing board. Fuck's sake he's such a prick. Is that why you're in a bad mood? She shrugged. Connell put his arms around her belly. He's only trying to get in your nerves, he said. If he thought he had the slightest chance with you, he would be talking very differently. He just thinks you look down on him. She shrugged again, chewing on her lower lip. You've nothing to worry about with your appearance, Connell said. Mm. I don't just like you for your brains, trust me. She laughed, feeling silly. He rubbed her ear with his nose and added, I would miss you if you didn't want to see me anymore. Would you miss sleeping with me? She said. He touched his hand against her hip bone, rocking her back against his body and said quietly, Yeah, a lot. Can we go back to your house now? He nodded. For a few seconds, they just stood there in stillness, his arms around her, his breath on her ear. Most people go through their whole lives, Marianne thought, without ever really feeling that close with anyone. Finally, after her third gin and tonic, the door bangs open and the boys arrive. The committee girls get up and start teasing them, scolding them for being late, things like that. Marianne hangs back, searching for Connell's eye contact, which he doesn't return. He's dressed in a white button-down shirt, the same added-as sneakers he wears everywhere. The other boys are wearing shirts too, but more formal-looking, shinier, and worn with leather dress shoes. There's a heavy, stirring smell of aftershave in the air. Eric catches Marianne's eye and suddenly lets go of Karen, a move obvious enough that everyone else looks around too. Look at you, Marianne! says Eric. She can't tell immediately whether he's being sincere or mocking. All the boys are looking at her now, except Connell. I'm serious, Eric says. Great dress. Very sexy. Rachel starts laughing, leans in to say something to Connell's ear. He turns his face away slightly and doesn't laugh along. Marianne feels a certain pressure in her head that she wants to relieve by screaming or crying. Let's go and have a dance, says Karen. I've never seen Marianne dancing, Rachel says. Well, you can see her now, says Karen. Karen takes Marianne's hand and pulls her towards the dance floor. There's a Kanye West song playing, the one with the Curtis Mayfield sample. Marianne is still holding the raffle book in one hand and she feels the other hand damp inside Karen's. The dance floor is crowded and sends shudders of bass up through her shoes into her legs. Karen props an arm on Marianne's shoulder, drunkenly, and says in her ear, Don't mind Rachel, she's in foul humour. Marianne nods her head, moving her body in time with the music. Feeling drunk now, she turns to search the room, wanting to know where Connell is. Right away she sees him, standing at the top of the steps. He's watching her. The music is so loud it throbs inside her body. Around him the others are talking and laughing. He's just looking at her and saying nothing. Under his gaze her movements feel magnified, scandalous, and the weight of Karen's arm on her shoulder is sensual and hot. She rocks her hips forward and runs a hand loosely through her hair. In her ear Karen says, "'He's been watching you the whole time.' Marianne looks at him and then back at Karen, saying nothing, trying not to let her face say anything. Now you see why Rachel's in a bad mood with you, says Karen. She can smell the wine spritzer on Karen's breath when she speaks. She can see her fillings. She likes her so much at that moment. They dance a little more and then go back upstairs together, hand in hand, out of breath now, grinning about nothing. Eric and Rob are pretending to have an argument. Connell moves towards Marianne almost imperceptibly and their arms touch. She wants to pick up his hand and suck on his fingertips one after another. Rachel turns to her then and says, you might try actually selling some raffle tickets at some point. Marianne smiles and the smile that comes out is smug, almost derisive. And she says, OK. I think these lads might want to buy some, says Eric. Eric he nods over at the door where some older guys have arrived. They're not supposed to be here. The nightclub said it would be ticket holders only. Marianne doesn't know who they are, someone's brothers or cousins maybe, or just men in their twenties who like to hang around school fundraisers. They see Eric waving and come over. Marianne looks in her purse for the cash pouch in case they do want to buy raffle tickets. Hard things, Eric, says one of the men. Who's your friend here? That's Marianne Sheridan. Marianne Sheridan. Eric says. you no, know her brother, I'd say. Alan. He would have been a mix here. The man just nods, looking Marianne up and down. She feels indifferent to his attention. The music is too loud to hear what Rob is saying in Eric's ear, but Marianne feels it has to do with her. Let me get you a drink, the man says. What are you having? No thanks, says Marianne. The man slips an arm around her shoulders then, He's very tall, she notices, taller than Connell. His fingers rub her bare arm. She tries to shrug him off, but he doesn't let go. One of his friends starts laughing and Eric laughs along. Nice dress, the man says. Can you let go of me? She says. Very low cut there, isn't it? In one motion, he moves his hand down from her shoulder and squeezes the flesh of her right breast in front of everyone. Instantly she jerks away from him, pulling her dress up to her collarbone, feeling her face fill with blood. Her eyes are stinging and she feels a pain where he grabbed her. Behind her the others are laughing. She can hear them. Rachel is laughing, a high fluting noise in Marianne's ears. Without turning around, Marianne walks out the door, lets it slam behind her. She's in the hallway now with the cloakroom and can't remember whether the exit is right or left. She's shaking all over her body. The cloakroom attendant asks if she's all right. Marianne doesn't know anymore how drunk she is. She walks a few steps towards a door on the left and then puts her back against the wall and starts sliding down towards a seated position on the floor. Her breast is aching where that man grabbed it. He wasn't joking. He wanted to hurt her. She's on the floor now, hugging her knees against her chest. Up the hall, the door comes open again and Karen comes out, with Eric and Rachel and Connell following. They see Marianne on the floor and Karen runs over to her while the other three stay standing where they are, not knowing what to do, maybe, or not wanting to do anything. Karen hunches down in front of Marianne and touches her hand. Marianne's eyes are sore and she doesn't know where to look. You all right? Karen says. I'm fine, says Marianne. I'm sorry... I think I just had too much to drink. Leave her, says Rachel. Here, look. It was just a bit of fun, says Eric. Pat's actually a sound enough guy if you get to know him. I think it was funny, says Rachel. At this, Karen snaps around and looks at them. Why are you even out here if you think it was so funny, she says. Why don't you go and pell around with your best friend, Pat, if you think it's so funny to molest young girls? How is Marianne young? says Eric. We were all laughing at the time, says Rachel. That's not true, says Connell. Everyone looks around at him then. Marianne looks at him. Their eyes meet. Are you okay, are you? He says. Oh, do you want to kiss her better, says Rachel. His face is flushed now and he touches a hand to his brow. Everyone is still watching him. The wall feels cold against Marianne's back. Rachel, he says, would you ever fuck off? Karen and Eric exchange a look then, eyes wide. Marianne can see them. Connell never speaks or acts like this in school. In all the years she has never seen him behave at all aggressively, even when taunted. Rachel just tosses her head and walks back inside the club. The door falls shut heavily on its hinges. Connell continues rubbing his brow for a second. Karen mouths something at Eric. Marianne doesn't know what it is. Then Connell looks at Marianne and says, Do you want to go home? I'm driving. I can drop you. She nods her head. Karen helps her up from the floor. Connell puts his hands in his pockets as if to prevent himself touching her by accident. Sorry for making a fuss, Marianne says to Karen. I feel stupid. I'm not used to drinking. It's not your fault, says Karen. Thank you for being so nice, Marianne says. They squeeze hands once more. Marianne follows Connell towards the exit then and around the side of the hotel to where his car is parked. It's dark and cool out here with the sound of music from the nightclub pulsing faintly behind them. She gets in the passenger seat and puts her seatbelt on. He closes the driver's door and puts his keys in the ignition. Sorry for making a fuss, she says again. You didn't, says Connell. I'm sorry the others were being so stupid about it. They just think Pat is great because he has these parties in his house sometimes. Apparently if you have house parties it's okay to mess with people, I don't know. It really hurt, what he did. Connell says nothing then. He just needs the steering wheel with his hands. He looks down into his lap and exhales quickly, almost like a cough. Sorry, he says. Then he starts the car. They drive for a few minutes in silence, Marianne cooling her forehead against the window. Do you want to come back to my house for a bit? He says. Is Lorraine not there? He shrugs. He taps his fingers on the wheel. She's probably in bed already, he says. I mean we could just hang out for a bit before I drop you home. It's okay if you don't want to. What if she's still up? Honestly, she's pretty relaxed about this sort of stuff anyway. Like, I really don't think she'd care. Marianne stares out the window at the passing town. She knows what he's saying. That he doesn't mind if his mother finds out about them. Maybe she already knows. Lorraine seems like a really good parent. Marianne remarks. Yeah, I think so. She must be proud of you. You're the only boy in school who's actually turned out well as an adult. Connell glances over at her. How've I turned out well, he says. What do you mean? Everyone likes you, and unlike most people, you're actually a nice person. He makes a facial expression she can't interpret, kind of raising his eyebrows or frowning. When they get back to his house, the windows are all dark and Lorraine is in bed. In Connell's room, he and Marianne lie down together whispering. He tells her that she's beautiful. She has never heard that before though she has sometimes privately suspected it of herself but it feels different to hear it from another person. She touches his hand to her breast where it hurts and he kisses her. Her face is wet. She's been crying. He kisses her neck. Are you okay? He says. When she nods he smooths her hair back and says It's all right to be upset, you know. She lies with her face against his chest. She feels like a soft piece of cloth that is wrung out and dripping. You would never hit a girl, would you? She says. God, no, of course not. Why would you ask that? I don't know. Do you think I'm the kind of person who would go around hitting girls? He says. She presses her face very hard against his chest. My dad used to hit my mum, she says. For a few seconds, which seems like an unbelievably long time... Connell says nothing. Then he says, Jesus, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. It's okay, she says. Did he ever hit you? Sometimes. Connell is silent again. He leans down and kisses her on the forehead. I would never hurt you, okay? He says, Never. She nods and says nothing. You make me really happy he says. His hand moves over her hair and he adds, I love you. I'm not just saying that. I really do. Her eyes fill up with tears again and she closes them. Even in memory she will find this moment unbearably intense and she's aware of this now while it's happening. She has never believed herself fit to be loved by any person. But now she has a new life of which this is the first moment and even after many years have passed, she will still think, yes, that was it, the beginning of my life.